Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Six Reasons to Preserve the Electoral College. The date, November 2020. I'm Bell Abbas. A November 15th editorial board opinion in the Washington Post stated, quote, The Electoral College, whatever virtues it may have had for the Founding Fathers, is no longer tenable for American democracy. Unquote. Yet this editorial is not so much a discussion of the Electoral College in and of itself. Rather, it is about the topic that has dominated media for the last five years. That would be Donald J. Trump. There were certainly questions about the Electoral College after George W. Bush's win in 2000, but it was not with the same vitriol as with Trump. Quote, Mr. Trump's election was a sad event for the nation. Unquote, notes the Post, quote, his re-election would have been a calamity, unquote. It is not shocking a piece of information to learn that the Post's editors are not exactly fans of the 45th president, but by calamity, they are referring to the fact that Trump's election would have been the only time in the nation's history that a loser of the popular vote twice would have won re-election. The Post editorially does acknowledge some challenges with going to a fully popular vote outcome. Quote, there are worries that direct election might encourage regionalism or third parties at the extremes of political discourse. Any switch to a national system would rightly trigger debates over runoffs or rank choice voting to ensure majority rule. And we recognize that the constitutional amendment that would, would be required isn't going to happen, unquote. But the Post concludes with, quote, Americans are not going to be satisfied with leaders who have been rejected by a majority of voters, and they're right not to be. It's time to let the majority rule, unquote. As we shall see, the Post seems to have missed uh, the differentiation between a majority of votes and the most votes, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Now, this was not the first time the electoral vote and popular vote had split. Previous presidents who were elected with a majority of the electoral vote, but not the popular vote, include John Quincy Adams in 1824, Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876, Benjamin Harrison in 1888, George W. Bush in 2000, and most recently, Donald J. Trump in 2016. Now, the Post's contention does have a lot of support. According to a Gallup poll run on September 24th, quote, heading into the 2020 presidential election, three in five Americans favor amending the U.S. Constitution to replace the Electoral College with a popular vote system, marking a six percentage point uptick since April 2019. This preference for electing the president based on who receives the most votes nationwide is driven 89% of Democrats, and 68% of independents. Far fewer Republicans, 23%, share this view, as 77% of them support keeping the current system in which the candidate with the most votes in the Electoral College wins the election, unquote. Obviously, that is not really a surprising statistic, given that out of seven of the eight Last elections, the Republicans have not won the popular vote. Nevertheless, 
It will be interesting that in a post-Trump world, whether these numbers will hold. Whatever one wants to say about his policies or his personality, the man has built one of his celebrated buildings in the minds of the media and many leftist voters. And at this point, it is probably near impossible to decide whether the abrogation of the Electoral College is about a dissatisfaction with that system in and of itself or the concern that you would get another Donald Trump presidency. Now, the the sentiment of giving the election to the one with the most votes directly from the citizens is understandable in most aspects of life, whether sports, business, or most political elections. The winner is almost always the person with the more significant numbers. Golf is the exception, but golf is wonderful and infuriating and irritating, so that can be dismissed. But in every other sport, football, basketball, hockey, tennis even, the higher score wins. But the Electoral College doesn't necessarily set aside this concept of the most votes win. No, in the case of the Electoral College, it is not how many, but where the most votes are actually counted. And it was this concept of balancing the choice of the citizens as a majority versus the sanctity and liberty of each citizen as an individual and as many of a particular state that was something the founders wrestled with at the inception of the republic. Before 1776, American colonists were citizens of the English king whose government was run not by a popularly elected magistrate, but rather through a parliament. The party who had the votes in parliament would choose their leader, who in turn would become prime minister, assuming the support of the king. But none of this was about the direct voting public of Great Britain. And throughout most of the world in the time of the Constitution, ratified in 1787, most of the world was still ruled by monarchs who owed their positions to the accident of birth. They, in turn, would choose their chief ministers. In an article for History.com by Dave Roos, the author notes, quote, At the time of the Philadelphia Convention, no other country in the world directly elected its chief executive, so the delegates were wading into uncharted territory. Further complicating the task was a deep-rooted distrust of executive power. After all, the fledgling nation had just fought its way out from under a tyrannical king and overreaching colonial governors. They didn't want another despot on their hands, unquote. Roos adds to this, quote, Another camp was dead set against letting the people elect the president by a straight popular vote. First, this group thought that 18th century voters lacked the resources to be fully informed about the candidates, especially in rural outposts. Second, they feared a headstrong democratic mob steering the country astray. And third, a populist president appealing directly to the people could command dangerous amounts of power, unquote. Out of those drawn-out debates came a compromise based on the idea of electoral intermediaries. These intermediaries wouldn't be picked by Congress or elected by the people. Instead, the states would each appoint independent electors who would then cast the presidency's actual ballots. But again, the states originally were to appoint them, but today 
in the electoral system as we understand it, the states popularly choose. And in all but two states, it is winner take all. So in that regard, within the confines of the borders of, let's say, Florida or California, the vote, popular vote actually does matter. But the argument would still go that this is not the 18th century, but the 21st. We can look to a more enlightened, maybe dare say it, a more progressive age. But is it not a little rich for those who denigrated Trump for four years with labels such as authoritarian or tyrant are now rejecting a system designed to prevent just that type of one person rule? But because the one vote, one person concept is prevalent, it is time for a full-throated defense of a system that has worked better, well, probably than any other in history in choosing leadership and transferring the power to new leaders. The Electoral College has served the nation well for 57 peaceful and one non-peaceful transfer of power. And there are distinct advantages of continuing this system going on into the future. Here are six reasons, six reasons to keep the Electoral College. Reason number one, love recounts and election ambiguity, then you will love a popular election. In 2000, the country endured over a month of ambiguity concerning the election's validity in a single state, Florida. It was just a few counties actually within Florida, but the president's election came down to about 500 votes. Now, in 2020, mainly at the best of President Trump and some of his less scrupulous supporters, we have had challenges in about five to six states, including battlegrounds, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Now, the Democrats love to say that Hillary, quote, won, unquote, by 3 million votes cast out of a total of 129 million. Now, these numbers seem broad. They seem expansive. But that percentage difference in the popular vote is a little over 2% of all the votes cast. Now, the Biden margin is a little bit more considerable, nearing close to 6 million at last count. But that margin, again, comprises a 3% gap. But what if a litigiously enterprising soul such as Donald Trump challenges this? And let us not fool ourselves. Democrats contested the election of 1980. They contested the election of 2000 and even claimed that 2016 was, quote, illegitimate, unquote. That means the loser need only flip a margin of 2% to win the entire election. But where would that 2% be found? Why, everywhere. Forget five or even 10 states. We would be recounting in all 50 states. This would not be a few weeks or even a month. Lawsuits across 50 states or even across a more significant number of counties would be unending. Think that Trump's actions or Gore's inhibited the transition to the next administration? There would be no one available to administer the oath of office to the new president because all SCOTUS members would be busy hearing election lawsuits. As Kyle Rove, writing for the Wall Street Journal in 2019, notes, quote, Imagine how many recounts there would be if the popular vote decided it all. Even safely Republican and solidly Democrat states would order recounts as each party tried adding 
to its national numbers. And frankly, they'd have every reason to. James Garfield's popular vote margin in 1880 was only 1,898 ballots, or 0.09% of the nationwide vote. John F. Kennedy won in 1960 by 0.17% of the popular vote. Grover Cleveland in 1884 by 0.57%. Richard Nixon in 1968 by 0.7% of a percent. And James Polk in 1845 by 1.45 percent. And most recently, Jimmy Carter in 1976 by just 2 percent. In each of these six instances, the winner had a healthy, healthy electoral college margin, unquote. George F. Will, writing in 2016 for the Washington Post, states, quote, and the electoral vote system quarantines electoral disputes. Imagine the 1960 election under direct popular election. John F. Kennedy's popular vote margin over Richard M. Nixon was 118,574 total votes. If all 68,800,000 popular votes had been poured into a single national bucket, there would have been powerful incentives to challenge the results in many of the nation's 170,000 precincts, unquote. Rove goes on to identify those contests where the eventual winner did not even have a majority of all votes, something prevalent when third-party candidates enter the fray. Quote, then consider the 19 contests, nearly one-third, of all presidential races in which the president came into office with less than 50% of the popular vote. It was their substantial electoral college victories that provided mandates to govern, unquote. Again, this is where the Post should have stated the person with the most votes instead of a majority. But of course, the Post used that term majority because that term rings more powerful. And yet, Consider the case of Bill Clinton. In 1992, he only commanded 43% of the popular vote. That is not a majority. His two opponents' combined votes were substantially larger. Yet Clinton did have an overwhelming majority of the Electoral College. Now, is the Post suggesting, because again, Clinton did not win the majority, that Clinton did not have the mandate to govern? And there was also the pesky election of 1860, I think you know the one, in which the victor only received 40% of the vote. And though some extremists working at the New York Times wish to denigrate Abraham Lincoln, I doubt a majority of Americans are willing to go that far. In my opinion, I think that 40% actually got it right. But fortunately for the entire nation of the United States and millions of slaves, Abraham Lincoln did get a vast majority of the electoral vote and thus assumed the presidency outright. Reason number two, we are not America. We are the United States of America. There is France. There is Russia. There was a Czechoslovakia, but now there is the Czech Republic and a Slovakia. There is the United Kingdom, but the pieces of that union are England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. 
There is not an America in a single state sense. The compromises to achieve a union depended on a limited government that owed its legitimacy to the people. But at the inception, there was roughly, really, many countries, 13 of them, brought together by a union. Some of the state's differentiation aspects were positive, such as New York's focus on merchants and banking. Some were not positive, such as the existence of slavery, eliminated in 1865 by that plurality president in the southern states. But the point of having individual states, each with rules and regulations of their own, was to curb the power of a central government to rule over the people and drive decision-making to the local level as much as possible. Again, the protestations of progressives over Trump's supposedly dictatorial ambitions are wind compared to their desires to eliminate the very limitations of government imposed by the founders to keep an Andrew Jackson, a Franklin Roosevelt, or a Donald Trump in check, literally in terms of checks and balances. Now, the elimination of the Electoral College would then, if the states are abrogated, then why have a Senate? But we have a Senate for this reason. As the online Senate.gov page itself notes, quote, the framers of the Constitution created the United States Senate to protect the rights of individual states and safeguard minority opinion in a system of government designed to give greater power to the national government, unquote. Writing for National Affairs, historian Alan Gelzo says, quote, abolishing the Electoral College now might satisfy an irritated yearning for direct democracy, but it would also mean dismantling federalism. After that, there would be no sense in having a Senate, which after all represents the interests of the state. And eventually, no sense in even having states, except as administrative departments of the central government. Unquote. Do Texans really yearn to be treated with the same central authority as New Yorkers or Californians or vice versa? Reason number three, be careful what you wish for. Version one, Republicans ascendant. There is a thought among Democrats that they would automatically match the totals of past elections. But no Republican candidate has seriously campaigned in California or New York for probably 20 years now. The Democrats, however, have campaigned in typically red states such as Texas, Florida, and Georgia. As an opinion writer for the Washington Post, Charles Lane stated in September of 2020, quote, This is partly because the Electoral College skews candidates' campaigns causing them to focus their mobilization efforts more on, say, rural Wisconsin than on populous Los Angeles, contrary to what they do in a direct election, unquote. In states that are virtually one-party rule, such as California, there is an indirect suppression of Republican voters due to their understanding that their vote is often near meaningless. But what would a Donald Trump do in this state? Exactly what would a Central Valley rally in Fresno look like? A contention to this theory is that a state like California consistently skews for the Democrats, despite a Democratic candidate not actively working the state. Trump did not go there, but really neither did Clinton or Biden. Well, except to pick up some really big checks. But the Democrats do have plenty of people working the state. 
It has been 14 years since a Republican was even competitive in a statewide election. And since that time, California has acquired a supermajority of Democrats. What would happen if Republicans were actually to try in some of these states? As David Harsanyi, a columnist for National Review, notes, quote, Running up the score in big states gives partisan activists fodder, but it is irrelevant. If Donald Trump ran for the national vote, he might well have won it by spending all of his time in California and New York and talking about the things that matter to Californians and New Yorkers, unquote. In a post-2020 election article dated November 6th from NBC News, Carmen Sessa noted that, quote, from the time President Donald Trump took office, he focused on the Latino vote in Florida. And according to figures coming out of the state, it paid off on Election Day, especially in Miami-Dade County, the most populous in the state. According to NBC News exit polls, around 55% of Florida's Cuban-American vote went to Trump, while 30% of Puerto Ricans and 48% of other Latinos also backed Trump. Trump won the coveted battleground state with its 29 electoral votes. Trump drastically improved his support in Miami-Dade County, going from roughly 333,000 votes in 2016 to at least 529,000 votes this year, unquote. But the really important insight of this article comes when the Democratic vote is examined. Like Trump, Biden and the Democrats also worked Florida, but to a lesser outcome. Quote, Biden, however, wasn't able to grow Democratic support in the county. Clinton got 624,000 votes there in 2016. And with 95% of the vote tallied, Biden had less, 613,000 votes in Miami-Dade County, unquote. Florida is a battleground state, and Trump even has a residence there. But what would happen if Trump worked over California Latinos as assiduously as he is focused on those within Florida? Reason number four, be careful what you wish for version two, the Jackson Chronicles and majoritarianism. Because of their track record of success in total votes, the Democrats feel that a popular vote would be suitable for democracy by well, being good for Democrats, they are not alone in equating their needs with the needs of the country. Churchill famously stated in 1947 that, quote, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time, unquote. Sometimes the benighted American people, so breathlessly cited by politicians of every stripe, get it wrong. James Buchanan won the popular vote. So did eugenicist Woodrow Wilson win the most votes in 1912 and an outright majority in 1916. But one of those who did not initially win the Electoral College but did win a plurality votes was Andrew Jackson in the election of 1824. The first time, and just one of five times, in which the popular vote and the electoral vote were split. Now, Jackson uh, was no man's quitter. 
And he ended up winning outright in 1828. And what did he do when he actually did get power? Well, he proceeded basically to send tens of thousands of Native Americans to their doom in the Trail of Tears. Meanwhile, the Electoral College winner of 1824, John Quincy Adams, who would later lose to Jackson in 1828, would be a champion of the abolition of slavery. We are not a democracy, but rather a republic. We are a nation of limited government and checks and balances to prevent people from obtaining absolute power and becoming the threat that the Democrats perceive Trump to be. The Electoral College is part of that system meant to limit anyone's ability, even when that power is a majority. As in the cases stated above, sometimes, but not always, majorities get it very wrong. Jackson was the most popular president between Washington and Franklin Roosevelt. The majority had no issue that he was a slave owner, that he fought duels, that he wreaked havoc upon the Seminole Nation and perpetuated an abominable policy towards Native Americans. Heck, to some 1800s voters, these were virtues. But of course, that would never happen today, right? The people elected Jackson were as confident of their beliefs as the progressives and the mega crowd are today. The difference is that conservatives, true conservatives, believe in government limitations as edified by the Electoral College and not just by presidents. The Senate page states, quote, James Madison, paraphrasing Edmund Randolph, explained in his notes that the Senate's role was first to protect the people against their rulers and secondly to protect the people against the transient impressions in which they might be led, unquote. Harsanyi adds, quote, the fact that the Electoral College doesn't align with the popular vote isn't alarming. It is the point. If the Electoral College synchronized with the outcome of the direct Democratic national vote tally every election, well, it wouldn't need to exist. It isn't a loophole. It is a bulwark. The Electoral College exists to diffuse the very thing the Post claims is most beneficial, the overbearing majority. As James Madison put it, if majoritarianism is genuinely the best means of deciding an issue, then the Post would support a mere majority of states being able to overturn the First Amendment or choose abortion policy. Unquote. And one simple wordplay. If COVID had not happened, it is it not possible that Donald Trump might have achieved a popular vote win? We are talking about a simple 3% swing without a once-in-a-century plague. Donald Trump had a booming economy. Donald Trump did not have any significant wars on his foreign affairs plate. And he was faced off against a candidate who actually placed fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. In some ways, he was the candidate, Joe Biden, who was selected after all the other candidates had been looked at. Again, we are talking about 3% of the vote. Now, how hot are Democrats on this whole popular vote scenario? Donald Trump, as much as a President Sanders or a President Warren, is the reason for limited government and that bulwark that Harsanyi had just mentioned against majoritarianism. Reason number five, fractionalization. 
gridlock, polarization, divisiveness. These are the catchwords of those on both sides of the political divide, though a little bit more shrill on the left in regard to government today. Because the founders believed in limited government, the ability to get things done was purposely made more difficult. But these checks were meant to limit government, but not permanently. The government was supposed to work, just not work so fast that so much liberty would be ceded from the people to the government that that liberty would be permanently harmed. But if you think you like gridlock, polarization, divisiveness today, consider what would happen without the electoral college's ability that tends to drive all focus onto two parties. Gelzo and James Holm, in a column for the Wall Street Journal, state, quote, Without the Electoral College, there would be no effective break on the number of viable presidential candidates. Abolish it, and it would not be difficult to imagine a scenario where, in a field of a dozen micro-candidates, the winner only needs 10% of the vote and represents less than 5% of the electorate and presidents. Elected with smaller and smaller pluralities will only aggravate the sense that an elected president is governing without a real electoral mandate, Much is made of Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party, but without an electoral college, Trump would hold a significant block of votes in a purely popular election and could be a political force not just in the Republican Party, But why not create a Trump party all his own? With the Electoral College, third parties have traditionally struggled to gain traction. In 1992, Ross Pro garnered 19% of the popular votes and no electoral ones. Now imagine Trump in the same scenario, but with over 30% of the popular vote. Let's really step back. Imagine an election in which Donald Trump is running with that 30%. Then you have Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, heck, Elizabeth Warren, throw her in as well. Maybe Bloomberg, after being gutted by Warren, wants to spend a couple more hundred millions of dollars on his election, and each of them garner 10% of the popular vote. Now you'd say like, oh, well, they're all going to rally together. They'll, they'll team up. Really? Sure about that? They have to team up. The only reason that these parties coalesce in the fashion that they do is is because without that teaming up, without that focus on that one candidate from each party, they won't win electoral votes. And let's just step back here, Democrats. Who has the most passionate voters of today? George Will adds, quote, Far from being an unchanged anachronism, frozen like a fly in 18th century amber, The Electoral College has actually evolved, shaping and shaped by the party system. American majorities are not spontaneous growths like dandelions. They are built by a two-party system that assembles them by the Electoral College's distribution incentive for a geographical breadth in a coalition of states. So, the Electoral College shapes the character of majorities by helping to generate those that are neither geographically nor ideologically narrow, and that depict more than the popular vote does national decisiveness, unquote. And finally, reason number six, history. Two presidents, both Republicans, lost the popular vote but won the electoral vote in the latter part of the 19th century. 
Rutherford B. Hayes beat the popular Samuel Tilden in 1876, and Grover Cleveland, the only elected Democratic president between 1860 and 1912, was bested by Benjamin Harrison in 1888. In Tilden's case, he never ran for president again, but in Cleveland's case, he ran for the third time and won the popular vote for the third time and was elected, or re-elected, I guess, in 1892, just in time to run his presidency directly into the buzzsaw of the Panic of 1893. Yet, as Kyle Rove notes in a 2019 column for the Wall Street Journal, quote, winning GOP candidates may have fallen short in the popular vote in 1876 and 1888 only because the black Republican vote in the South was being extinguished by violence, unquote. This is why historical comparisons can be problematic. It is one thing for Stacey Abrams to claim to claim voter suppression with little evidence in 2016 when these things can be checked and examined. But for the voting boards of post-bellum South, counting votes for the Republicans was not only frowned upon, but it could be mortally hazardous. We have now added to this total of three with the elections of 2000 and 2016. But in none of these cases did this tear the nation's fabric in such a way that in subsequent elections, the American people did not turn out to vote. The election of 2020 is telling. Both candidates received the highest vote totals in United States history. The use of the Electoral College has not, nor will it, diminish our electoral system's belief as long as the rules therein are followed. At this point, we are now up to a total of 5 out of 58 elections in which a split has been seen. That means a little under 92% of the elections align. And again, based on some of the information we just shared, those two elections of 1876 and 1888 should probably be thrown out. Now, the left also likes to cite the governmental decisions of other countries, especially the Nordic ones, but international comparisons undermine their case. Quote, most free nations don't have democratic majority votes for their executives. Parliamentary systems, for example, are not national polls. Between 1935 and 2017, the majority of British voters backed the party that formed a government on only two occasions. Voters do not even cast a ballot directly for the prime minister. In 2019, favored Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau lost the popular vote, unquote. By eliminating the Electoral College, we are far more likely to spark the creation of smaller parties that would keep presidents from gaining a majority. Of historical interest, Vladimir Putin was elected through a direct national poll. Want to know genuine threats to our voting elections? There's ballot harvesting. There's use of illegal votes and outright fraud involved in mass mail-in voting. And finally, assuming the system is fair, the electoral college system is the game. Perhaps the Democrats should spend a little bit more time connecting with those in battleground states, coincidentally, many are in the Midwest, necessary to win elections, than worrying about changing the system's rules. Thank you for listening to this conservative historian podcast. We ask you to look for other conservative historian content, essays, columns, new book reviews. We just did one on the guns of August from the great Barbara Tuchman. 
And of course, keep an eye out for conservative historian collected works on sale right now at Amazon, hardcover, or Kindle editions. Thank you very much.